All right, well, onward through this wonderful book of Daniel. You know, the, the end is in sight, and I, I grimace a little bit because I've had such a great time in, in opening up and understanding God's Word and, and hoping to help you understand it better. And as we think of our text tonight, a, a term that we're all familiar with from the world, um, and not a tremendous term, but I think applicable here, is that term deja vu. You've heard it, and you've probably used it, and, and deja vu is a, a feeling that something that you're experiencing has been revealed to you before, and that you're going through this event, it's like, wow, this has happened to me before, and, and this uh, seems very much like we, what we've examined in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11 is written, as we know from our sheets, in 536 B.C., and it is written at the time of the third year of Cyrus, as Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1 told us. And we know that chapter 10 through 12 is one unit of Daniel's final vision. So it's written in 536 BC. And yet the events of chapter 11 occur, as we know from our sheet of our kings, from 336 BC down through 164 BC. So we have a 150 year time period that's fulfilled in the verses that we've been looking at and it is fulfilled so specifically that it's kind of like a deja vu. Because here is a prophetic text from Daniel written 250 to 300 years ahead of the events that occurred. And yet the specifics of this are absolutely fascinating. They're so familiar as we look at them, it's almost as if they've already been experienced. We have the exact detailing of the lives of six kings of the south, the Ptolemies, and the exact detailing of eight kings of the north the Seleucids from Syria. And the details are stunning. The aspects of, of wives, of sons that are uh, given to us and intimately and intricately detailed and what happens to those individuals. And as we look at them now from a historical con context and consider how God revealed this vision to Daniel, it's absolutely fascinating. It shows us that from historic positions, there is incredible detail. So far in chapter 11, we've seen all of the kings of Greece and Media Persia, each described with the de detail of their lives alluded to in what appears somewhat general and nonspecific reference, if we just read it. And I know for many of you, like me, when you read Daniel chapter 11, it was kind of like you were reading it from a prophetic point of view because we don't have that understanding of the history of ancient Israel. So when we see it brought forward in this kind of situation or when we just read it rather, we think, well, it, it seems a little ambiguous and it's hard to track the specifics. But when we look carefully at the study, we see it not as just broad generalizations of future events, that really it is extremely specific from a historical perspective. And again, people who don't carefully study prophecy see it as a broad generalization of future events. That is, if they believe in prophecy at all. 
And many do not. Many really struggle in this area. Both believers and unbelievers, surprisingly enough. But when we look at scriptural prophecy, we understand from what Daniel shows us that it is extremely specific and precise. Because God is extremely specific and precise. And so we would expect that very kind of detail coming from our perfect and sovereign God. And that's exactly what we have before us. So as we recognize these specifics, it's wonderful for us to focus on this. And this continues in our text tonight. Only it's even more fascinating. Now hopefully you've already been surprised at the accuracy of the description of these 14 kings. Admittedly, we've gone pretty fast as we went through the lives of 14 kings in one night over 19 verses. And you may have thought, wow, there's just no way I can keep up with that. And as you consider this sheet, I understand that. And my other option would have been to just kind of glaze over it as a lot of people will do and say, well, yeah, these are just a lot of historic kings and you can take my word for it that it's all specifically fulfilled. But I wanted you to see those nuances. And I realize that in covering it in that time frame that it may have been difficult to grasp. So I'd encourage you to go back and look at your Bibles with this sheet in hand and identify verse by verse as we did in the message where each of these kings occur because it will help you in recognizing again that specificity of prophecy and that these aren't random details that we kind of look at and go well yeah that could be a lot of things because although it could when we understand the time frame and the individual aspects historically of these individuals we see How particular and how unique is all of this fulfillment we've been given? And so really listening is an exercise of great value to us, particularly on these verses with these kings. But tonight we see the final king of the north, that is of the Seleucids. And we remember that the Seleucids go with Syria, the S and S. And our final king that we're going to look at tonight is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. As you look at your list, he is the final king on the right-hand side under the king of the Seleucids, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and he is quite a character. We'll get 15 verses of detail on this final king. Now that tells us a lot, doesn't it? We saw 19 verses last week of 14 kings, well, 13 taking him out of the picture. And now we're going to have 15 verses on this one king. Because he becomes a prototype. And that's very important for you to recognize. We're going to see a level of wickedness, a level of depravity, uh, not even seen amongst the uh, anti-God kings that we've looked at so far. And the reason is because... Antiochus IV Epiphanes is a prototype. And we're going to see that prototypical relationship specifically identified as we move ahead. And particularly when we get into our next section of scripture. And just like the the deja vu 
of the former kings of Daniel's prophecy, Antiochus' epiphany becomes astoundingly accurate as he's now portrayed and viewed from a historical point, but flabbergastingly breathtaking as related to the yet still prophecy of Antichrist that is to come. And that's the parallel. That's the prototype. And that that application and that connectivity is made twice in the book of Daniel. We saw it back in chapter 8, and we'll reflect on some of that tonight. And we'll see more of it later in chapter 8, and we'll see it in the rest of the verses in our text as we get to verse 36 and forward. So recognize that is that what we're looking at is preparatory for What we're going to see prophetically, what's revealed of the coming Antichrist, and what we see in Revelation. But when we get to Daniel verse 36, you're going to see information that is recorded nowhere else in Scripture. And it's some of the most stunning detail with regards to the end times, and fascinating in that regard. So, we'll we'll see all of this. So, let's go to our text in Daniel 11, and verses 21 to 35, and I've titled our text for tonight, Ending Epics of ancient Israel, ending epics of ancient Israel. Remember that all of this, all of Daniel centers around Israel. Israel is the human focus, and note this carefully, Israel is the human focus of God's redemptive plan. Think of these things. They are the one God chose to be his representative Entities of blessing to all the nations in the Abrahamic covenant. The first description of the restoration of a nation to God. They are the ones to whom the new covenant is primarily written. We are those who are grafted in. Look at Romans chapter 11. It is Israel to whom the new covenant is written. And we are those, as the language of Paul tells us, who have been grafted into that branch. So they are the formal recipients of that final covenant of restoration. They are the ones from which came the promised Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So as we recognize all of these things, we see that Israel is a pivotal and critical piece In God's redemptive plan. And our text reflects these ending epics of ancient Israel. That is Israel's final positive noteworthy events. The rest of their national history following our text will be that of repute and rejection of their Messiah destruction of their temple and their nation by Rome, all negatively and rightly portrayed in a negative characteristic because of their rejection of the Messiah whom they've been promised throughout the Old Testament, including our text. So this becomes kind of the, the, the pinnacle in many ways of the nation of Israel, but not the end. And we'll recognize that in our text as well. So we we see these aspects coming into full fruition in our text tonight. And that the, the 
nation of Israel will after this go into continual obscurity until the end of times. That is until the second coming of their Messiah, Jesus the Christ, and their acceptance of him whom they have pierced. When they will look upon and mourn over him whom they have pierced. Whom they have pierced. And in that, hundreds of yet unfulfilled prophecies will come to fruition. And the majority of those focusing on the nation of Israel. We look at Revelation uh, chapter 1 and verse 7. And we see that prophetic aspect of fulfillment where... The uh, Apostle John, as he writes this great book, uh, this final book of prophecy and the final book of our Bibles, writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be, amen. Where does that verse, behold, he is coming in the clouds, come from? If we look at our cross-references, we see it is Daniel 7.13. So the connectivity here is, is critical to see. And then we see the description of Jesus in his resurrected state through the rest of chapter 1. Other fulfillments of prophecy in addition to Daniel 17 are Zechariah chapters 13 and 14. And again, those hundreds, literally hundreds of prophetic references that have as yet not been fulfilled, but will be with his second coming. So thus we have the ending epics of ancient Israel and our theme, four facets of Israel's history affirming God's providence. Four facets of Israel's history that are affirming God's providence to us. Now, our first point is the time of intrigue. The time of intrigue. Let's look at our first verses in verses 21 to 24, and this through our first point. Follow along in your Bible as I read. Daniel 11, verse 21. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Here, our first point. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise in his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. So as we think of that text, verses 19 to 20, which we've just come out of into our text, we had the death of Antiochus III, the Great, at the hands of the people of Susa, that is in his own land, thus ushered in his son, Seleucus IV, in verse 20, who sent a tax collector to Israel, the jewel of the kingdom. And the tax collector returns from 
taxing all of this rich land of Israel with all of this money. And he decides, I'm going to take things into my own hands. And so he murders the next king, Seleucid IV. And as he murders that next king, Seleucus IV, then we have the entry into our text. And in verse 21, we have the rise of Antioch IV Epiphanes, the the, uh, despicable one, or literally in Hebrew, the one being despised. So we get an introduction into this king right off the bat. I mean, we look at at what we've talked about historically from all those other kings, all of the Ptolemies and all of the Seleucids, they're all a little despicable from my perspective. But the scripture calls out this one as being uniquely bad, as having a, a particular bent for which he is despised. And we will see that clearly. He was the most wicked persecutor of Israel. And as his brother, Seleucus IV, was killed, he arose to take the throne. It was his brother, interestingly, his brother Demetrius, who was the rightful heir, but was in captivity in Rome as a result of the treaty with Rome that Seleucus III, the Great, had to make back in verse 18. We spoke about that last week. And verse 21 says, he had no royal honor or kingship. And what that means is it was not his right to take the throne. It was his brother who was in captivity in Rome who he usurped and therein had no right to that throne because he was not the rightful heir. The time of tranquility or peace was because his brother was dead. Also, There was no current war with Ptolemies. And when we reflect back on the last verses, it seems like they're continually battling. And they were. And again, as we've talked about, their main point of battle was that little land of Israel, that land bridge between the southern land of Egypt and the northern land of Syria, which connect all of the northern continents of Asia, Asia Minor, Europe, with the southern continent of Africa. So it was a massive Massively important piece of land. So now there is no war. And the year is 175 BC. And Antiochus Epiphanes is, interestingly, in another point of this peace or tranquility, Antiochus IV Epiphanes is the uncle of Ptolemy VI, the ruler of Egypt. Ptolemy V, you remember from our last discussion, or you might not, but you can refresh yourselves. Ptolemy V married Antiochus Epiphany's sister, Cleopatra. Now he was killed, and they had a child who would come in, Ptolemy VI, to be the next king. But in that time, as he was taking the formal kingship, Cleopatra stepped in and she was reigning over Egypt. This is what we understand. This was astronomical for this time. There is nothing heard like this in any ancient world history that a woman would come in and rule. And she was no pushover ruler. 
She was a tyrant. And so you look at the Egyptian history of Cleopatra and you see some pretty horrific details of what went on. But Ptolemy V died in 186 and six years earlier he made his six-year-old son king. And that was from 181 to 176 when Cleopatra reigned until her death. She was also murdered. So the intrigue that we see in verse 21, or better yet, that Hebrew word meaning deception, is how Antiochus IV Epiphanes became king. That is usurping the next rightful heir, Demetrius. Now, before we go further, I want to reflect back to Daniel chapter 8, as I mentioned earlier. So turn back with me to Daniel chapter 8, and we want to see the previous discussion and description of this king. And we see it back in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 9. Daniel 8, again, is a broader prophecy of Greece and Media Persia. It is shorter. And now we've gotten very specific as Daniel 11, and particularly the verses we looked at, verses 2 to 20, is the specific prophecy of this 150 plus years of these 13 kings of Media Persia after Alexander the Great. So when we come to Daniel 8 and verses 9 to 14, it is about Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Let's look at Daniel 8 and verse 9. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. And it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifices, the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression... The host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. He said to me, For 2300 and evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now, that is now very specifically described in Daniel 11. The host of heaven and the stars that we see in verse 10, as we described when we preached this some weeks back, is a description of Israel. We know that fully when we look at uh, verse 12 and we see that the host will be given over to the horn. That is to this one, the small one, Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. And the stars also referring to Israel. You can go back and listen to that. The Seleucids now, as we know from last week, for the first time have control over Israel. Up to this point, lots of warring going on, but the Ptolemies continued to control Israel. Now they have lost that control, and it is under the control of the Seleucids, and specifically 
under the control of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now the Seleucids' control of Israel, and particularly Antioch Epiphanes, was ruthless. And he is trampling them down. And that's what we see in these verses in chapter 8. It says he stops the sacrifices of God. Notice in verse 11, the pronoun him is capitalized as a reference to God. Those are whose sacrifices he stops. And his sanctuary will be thrown down. That is the sacrifices ceasing and, and aspects of that, as we'll see more specifically tonight, taken away. Israel will be crushed under this one because of their sin and truth. This also is very important. God, when he brings judgment and when he brings punishment, it is never just to carry out his plan or because, yeah, this is what I wanted to do and what I've had all in mind. It's because of their iniquity. It's because of their sin. God will judge sin. He must judge sin to be a just and righteous God. And he does. And this is why he allows Antiochus Epiphanes to crush and to put underfoot the nation of Israel. And this is done because of their sin. And at this time, truth will cease. That is the proclamation of Scripture. That's the truth that will cease. We, is there any other truth? We say, oh, well, well, this could be truth, uh, this science is truth, or that science is truth. No, this book is truth. And as science or anything else aligns itself with God's word, we see it then as truth. But ultimate truth comes from God and from his word. And we know this, and that's why it's so fascinating for us to understand. As discussed in that former message, the 2300 days that are indicated here are six and a third years. This is not a reference to the 70-year captivity, but it is a literal reference to six and a third years. And that occurred, and look at your notes to see these parallels, this timeline, that occurred from September 171 B.C. until December of 164 B.C. That is the exact six and a third year period that Antiochus Epiphanes stopped the sacrificial system in the temple in Israel. And we're starting to see some really narrow ranges of fulfillment of prophecy, which is fantastic. Verses 23 to 25 of chapter 8 are a reflection of Antiochus Epiphanes, but they go beyond this and we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves because they're going to be that prototype relationship of Antiochus IV Epiphanes to Antichrist. So we'll come back and we'll look at those verses as we move ahead. So back to chapter 11, if you would, with me. And as we come back to chapter 11 and verse 22, we see that the defeat of Egypt and the Ptolemies as an overwhelming flood. Antiochus Epiphany made an arrangement with Ptolemy VI to help him defeat an adversary. And that adversary that was set up against him was his brother, Ptolemy VIII, and his sister, Cleopatra II. When we recognize these details that are ongoing here, we see some very unique facets of these relationships. The 
the son that was set up against Ptolemy the sixth, this Ptolemy the eighth, you and he's called Ptolemy the eighth. Your Gettys the second, distinct from the one in verse seven. If you look back at the at the uh, third in your list of the Ptolemies, it's Ptolemy the third. You are Gettys. This is Ptolemy the eighth. Your Gettys the second. And I know there's a lot of numbers here, but this is a distinct one from verse seven. And the overwhelming victory that we see in verse 20 came because of two items. One, Antiochus Epiphanes did not have to fight through Israel. He already owned Israel, so he was able to march his army to the very threshold of the Ptolemies on the edge of Egypt. And secondly, that during the time of peace, which is occurring because there's internal turmoil in Egypt... And because his brother that was king is dead, so he didn't have to fight into that position. His rightful brother is in captivity. And all this time, he is preparing an army. He's preparing for war, which will be, as is reported, the sixth Syrian war. By the way, there's an entire book written on the Syrian wars. And you can see all of these facets detailed there as well, as uh, I mentioned some of the other locations last week. The shattered prince of the covenant in verse 22 was the high priest of Israel, Onias III. Onias III is this one that was the priest. And there was much internal strife in Israel. Keep in mind, there's no king in Israel. So the high priest is effectively the one that is ruling and controlling the country. Exactly as we see a uh, hundred or so years later when Jesus arrives on the scene. It is the high priests that are in control of the Sanhedrin. So the high priest is in control and Onias third had, who is the high priest in control, he had Egyptian affinities. He liked Egypt more than Syria. Who's ruling Israel now? It's Syria, it's the Seleucids, it's Antioch Epiphanes. And the high priest likes Egypt better. Now this ought not be any surprise to us. Do you remember a time when Israel was out and having some struggles? And they said, we would rather be back in Egypt where we had good things to eat and where we had all of these provisions. Israel's always wanting something different. The grass is always greener, isn't it? You ever find that in your life? I wish I could say no, but we all know that sentiment. And that's exactly what's going on here. Egypt used to rule us, and we did not like them. But now there's a new ruler, and he's worse, so we like the old ruler. It's interesting as well that behind that, this is where the, uh, the phrase comes from the enemy of my enemy is my friend. A phrase that actually still applies in Israel today and it's so specifically understood in this context. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Israel's current enemy was Antioch Epiphanes and Syria and the Seleucids. Well, their enemy were the Ptolemies. So now the Ptolemies are my friend. They used to be my enemy, but now they are my friend. And that's how quickly things move in this world. And it goes on exactly the same to this very day. 
Well, in verse 23, Antioch Epiphanes makes an alliance with Ptolemy VI. Keep in mind, this is his nephew who he helped defeat his opponents in Ptolemy VIII and in Cleopatra II. And the reason that these two came to power is because there was a coup going on, and we'll see more of this in another verse, uh, that there were these power mongers in Egypt. Why did they arrive? Well, remember that Ptolemy VI was a child when he became king. And his mother Cleopatra reigned for a while. Well, during that power vacuum, these other big players came in and started to take control. And they're not liking the way this now teen, young 20 king is ruling, so they bring others to try to take him down. Antiochus steps in and befriends him to help carry this forward. Verse 23 tells us that Antiochus deceives even Ptolemy VI, And with a tiny band of soldiers, he conquers Memphis and much of Egypt and Alexandria. He made this alliance to save Ptolemy from getting run over by his brother and sister. And as a result of that, Ptolemy thinks everything's good with Antiochus. And so he kind of puts his guard down and Antiochus comes in and he cleans house through Egypt. The other two are out of the way. Those who the power brokers had put in place. So they're kind of shut back in the back. By the way, those power brokers are in Alexandria, which becomes the capital of the north, continues all the way through the early Middle Ages. And, and, and uh, Ptolemy VI is like, oh, this is my uncle. He's my pal. You know, he just saved my bacon from my brother and sister. So it's all good here. And while he thinks it's all good... Antiochus sends his army home except this small band and they go and they just crush Memphis and the majority of the rest of Egypt. And verse 24 then repeats this phrase at the beginning, the time of tranquility from verse 21. So before Egypt had known what happened, Antiochus Epiphanes had plagued and had pillaged the entire land. Then in a brilliant and never before scheme, he gives back some of the treasures to their gods via sacrificial offerings. And that's what's talked about in verse 24, which when you first read it, it's rather confusing. Um, In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm of the south of Egypt. He'll accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. In Hebrew, that literally reads his fathers or his fathers or his fathers of fathers four times that word and he will distribute plunder booty and possessions among them he's distributing plunder and booty against these who he's just conquered yes yes and it was a brilliant strategy because he took all of these things from them And then he takes a small portion and he brings it back and he makes offerings to their individual gods in their different regions. So they think, oh, he's a good guy. He's, even though he's just taken all of our stuff, he is obviously the gods are with him because now he's making offering to our gods. And it was a strategy that was absolutely brilliant. And as scripture tells us, never before considered. 
It was that which was a scheme that uh, they had never, that none of the fathers had ever done. And so he devised the schemes against the strongholds, but only for a time. And that becomes an important conception in our whole aspect of our outline, the time of intrigue. And that's exactly what it was. So these are the schemes that occur, but only for this period. And that takes us to our second point, a time of invasion. A time of invasion beginning in verse 25. Look at that with me. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army so that the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him and his army will overflow but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. In verse 25... Antiochus' epiphany is uh, against Ptolemy VI. Now, all of a sudden, this, this partnership has dissolved. Ptolemy VI put his guard down. His uncle comes in and cleans house. He realizes what's happened. And so now that partnership has gone for the moment. And they are prepared to war against one another again. Antiochus has a large army and Ptolemy VI has an even larger one, but he loses. And the reason is at the end of verse 25. Schemes will be devised against him. The young king had these adversaries who we knew are the ones who prepared the previous attacks by his brother and sister. And these, these other power brokers, they want to recapture Israel. Israel is the key piece in all of this, always. And Ptolemy VI, he doesn't have a particular appetite for that. He's just kind of been duped by his uncle. He's a young kid, and he's trying to just hold on to his reign. But these power brokers are like, no, we want Israel back. So they are the ones who dupe him. And They are the ones, again, who brought these adversaries against him. The adversaries that are described in verse 26 are those who eat choice food. That's how we know that these are some rich dudes that are hanging out in the background that have gained all this power, doubtlessly through their wealth. And they are the ones who have risen in this power vacuum of a child king. And the result was that many died. His army was overthrown or swept away, as the verb is perhaps better translated. And this is the same Hebrew term that we saw back in verse 22 with the overflowing forces. Even though it was a huge army larger than Antiochus's, they are swept away as if in a flood. Verse 27 is most interesting. And it describes a meeting of Antiochus Epiphanes and Ptolemy VI. Keep in mind, they had had an alliance which broke and now they're coming back together at the same table as the text tells us. Tanner reports this as occurring prior to the battle 
at, and that this occurred at the camp of Antiochus Epiphanes. Tanner further notes that it appeared that Antioch Epiphanes deceitfully promised to protect the young Ptolemy VI. Ptolemy recognized that these power brokers want him out of the way. And again, he pretends that he is going to buy off on Antioch's plot. I've been fooled once, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And so he's like, all right, I'll buy into this, but I'm really not. And this is, as it tells us in verse 29, they're speaking lies to one another at the same table. So Antioch alleges to protect the young Ptolemy, to defeat the Ptolemy adversaries, and to take the kingdom of Egypt so as to preserve him and later allegedly to return the kingdom to him in Egypt. And it appears that Ptolemy was just as deceptive, alluding to the fact that he would go along with this when probably all the while he was preparing to do some type of counterattack against his uncle who had already duped him once before. Well, whatever the arrangement was, it would not succeed for it was not in in accord with God's plan and it was not in accord with God's providential timetable. It was not according to the appointed time. And that's exactly what we see. For the end is still to come and that appointed time. And in verse 28... Antiochus Epiphanes returns to the north. Extra biblical sources confirm that the plan of verse 27 did not succeed. And Antiochus did not conquer Egypt more predominantly. He did not conquer Alexandria, which was the capital, despite inflicting heavy casualties. He put Ptolemy VI in Memphis under his own protection to keep him from being taken over by these uh, fat cats who eat the fine food and to keep him safe from his adversaries. Antiochus' heart, we see in verse 28, will be set against the Holy Covenant. The Holy Covenant is Israel, but specifically against the cultic system of temple worship and sacrifices. And so he takes action against the Jewish religious system formally. And here we have the extra biblical report that I'm going to read to you. But these are, this is the beginning of the 2300 days from one September of 171 to December of 164 that we read about back in Daniel 8. And here is the report from 1 Maccabees chapter 1 and verses 20 to 24. In this extra-biblical text, we see, after subduing Egypt, Antiochus returns in, 100, in the 143rd year. That would have been in 169. He went up against Israel, and he came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and all its utensils. He took also the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for drink offering, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, 
and the gold decoration on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver and the gold and the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures that he found, taking them all, and he went into his own land. So here, from the Jewish report of the Maccabees, we see the exact fulfillment and the further detail of what's happening here in verse 28. So he takes action against the Jewish religious system, and Antiochus Epiphanes then returns to Syria... And we'll return next week to see the rest of his antics and as relayed in the rest of the title of our text of these ending epics of ancient Israel. And in that, notice something about our text before we leave these verses. Look at a new concept that we've not yet seen here in verses 27 and 28. Do you see it there in verses 27 and 28? As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil. And then in verse 28, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. This idea of heart is a new concept that's being brought up to us here. And the point is that in the Old Testament, the heart is often referred to as something set against God. Think about the text in Genesis 6-5 as God looked upon the world prior to the flood and he saw that their heart was evil continually. This darkness that went on. And we understand that this was the, the depravity. This was the extension of all that went on in Sodom and Gomorrah and all that went on amongst mankind that had grown to such an extent that God, in his predetermined plan, would bring judgment at this point in time to flood and to kill every living thing upon the earth with the exception of Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives and those animals that would be with him on the ark. So it has always been for mankind. If we went back to Genesis 8.21, after the flood, we would see the very same thing shown for us in Genesis 8.21 as Noah's come off the ark. He's made the sacrifices. The Lord smelled the soothing, soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil his youth the heart of man as Jeremiah 17 9 says is desperately sick who can know it Jeremiah writes specifically the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it why is this it's because that man is born in sin and, and that is what and that is the what and why of the new covenant As we're told in Ezekiel, God, as he wrote the new covenant to Jeremiah and then to the prophet Ezekiel, he told them and he promised to the nation of Israel, I will give them a new heart. I will take out their heart of stone. I will wash them with clean water. In Jeremiah, he says, I will put my word in their heart. This is what we need, beloved. This is is what every person needs. 
And this is what we must continually strive to be obedient to, that new heart which we have been given as we have been made heirs, as we have been grafted into the new covenant, as we celebrate every second Sunday at communion. That it is Christ's work on the cross. It is him inaugurating the new covenant where he says, this is the new covenant in what? My blood. The blood of the covenant is the blood of Christ shed on the cross of Calvary. And it is that by which we receive a new heart. It is that by which we are made new. It is that by which his law is put in our hearts. But we must continually strive for obedience to that truth. The New Testament again uses phrases like old man and new man. The old man has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All of that was part of our lives we must absolutely reject and move past. And it would be wonderful if that were an instantaneous act that God did and and we were suddenly righteous and pure in reality and in truth and in action, but we are not. We must continue to pursue that sanctification. We must continue to recognize that as we look at the depravity that was in the, the kings of media Persia and of Greece before them and of Babylon before them and of Rome after them, that that same darkened heart is the same heart which exists in every man. And we must battle against it continually. Galatians 5.16 tells us that there is a war in us. That our flesh wars against his spirit. We have to be faithful in that war, beloved. Just as we see these wars, the same thing goes on in us. And we must continue to fight against it. What an important reminder when we see in our text God's sovereign plan being perfectly worked out with respect to Israel and the nations around her. Often in direct contrast to the heart of man. May we be those whose hearts are not contrary to God, but in complete conformity, we would bring forth all His glory so that the world may see the beauty and perfection of our Savior and that they, through our efforts, weak and feeble as they might be, would be drawn to Him. Amen? Father, we thank You for this picture. We thank You for the lesson that teaches us about how we are to live our lives, about teaches us about who we are, who we were before Christ and who we are now in Him. And Lord, we just ask that as we make this contemplation that we would recognize the gift that has been given to us. And in that gift, Father, that we would realize the desperate, desperate need of those around us. Those that we interact with every day that are dead and dying in their sins and trespasses and on their way to an eternal separation in hell from you. And that, Father, we would not let that person pass. That we would not do, we would not pass by without doing everything that we can to expose them to the light of Christ. Father, that we would reflect upon all of these things that we see. That we would glory in you, that we would understand your sovereign control and love and that we would honor you in all that we say and do. I thank you for this chance together. I thank you for my faithful brothers and sisters that come to hear your word. Bless them, encourage them, strengthen them, and use us, Lord, for your glory. For we have no greater good, no higher call. 
And that is our greatest joy. And we give you praise for being able to participate in it with you. For it is indeed your work. And we give you thanks in the name of our King, your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.